Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MBIT Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Medan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn, and I am interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now, back to the show. So welcome, everyone, to another episode of the MBIT Podcast. Today, a very special guest, the one and only Mark Cuban, who doesn't need an intro, but he's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, renowned investor and entrepreneur. You may know him from Shark Tank, but also the co-founder of Cost Plus, which is a drug company revolutionizing the pharmaceutical industry and changing lives. Without any further ado, thank you, Mark, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So let's start some background about how the pharmaceutical industry traditionally works. So when you normally buy a product from a retail store, you would expect the retailer to pay a wholesale price. And then you as a customer would pay an increased price so the retailer can make a profit. And this is what happens most of the time. But in the pharmaceutical industry, it's totally different. So we have the pharma company who then sells to the wholesaler who will then sell to the pharmacy. And then if a patient pays with their insurance card using a copay, that bill then gets sent to the insurance company. And then that insurance company sends these middlemans or pharmacy benefit managers to negotiate with the pharma companies for rebates. And these rebates would then be used to get the drug moved up on the formulary, which is a tier-based list of drugs, um, tier one and two and three. And higher up on the list means less copay for the patients and more sales for the drug company. And with all this hecticness, you and your partner are building Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs. With one in four Americans saying it's difficult to afford their medications, how are you working to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry with Cost Plus? So all those things you just mentioned in terms of how the industry obfuscates pricing and eliminates transparency, well, we just avoided all those. We worked outside that traditional approach and are being very transparent. We buy from the manufacturer. We sell, we market up at 15% plus a $3 pharmacy handling fee plus $5 for shipping. That's how we sell it. And we sell it direct to consumers and then we mail the medications to them. And so if you have any type of prescriptions at all, you can go to costplusdrugs.com, look to see if we care. And right now we carry about 800, but we're adding more. I think we're adding another 113 in 10, no, five days. So we'll just keep on growing that amount. Primarily right now we're generics, but we'll be adding brand name drugs. But you just go put in your drug name, look to see what our cost is, see that it's marked up 15% and boom, that's your price. And because we've eliminated so much of the, Michigas, all the other extraneous costs, we're able to sell for much less than not only other sources, but also typically less than people's copay. Gotcha. That's much simpler. And when I interview founders on the podcast, we see a lot of co-founders and business partners generally complement each other's weaknesses. How did you and your business partner meet? And then how do you complement each other's strengths and weaknesses? 
Well, first, you're 100% right. I mean, any business I've ever started, you know, I try to be honest with myself and know what I suck at and try to get somebody who compliments my skill set. Josh Myansky is a radiologist, so he's a doctor that treats patients. He is also a PhD in mathematics. He did one year of law school just because, why not? He's, I think he's got his MBA as well. And so the guy's a little bit smart, but he's also very detail-oriented, and I'm not. In all my businesses, Micro Solutions, I had a guy named Martin Woodall. and Broadcast.com, it was Todd Wagner. And now it's Dr. Oshmyansky, who is very detail-oriented, very smart, very strategic, but also recognizes that what my skill sets are, strategic, marketing, finance, capital, whatever, those types of things. And so together, we've been really, really, really good. And, and so far, everything has worked out really well together. So the way I met Dr. Alex, Dr. Oshmyansky, was he just called emailed me. He sent me an email saying that he was building this compounding pharmacy in Denver and wanted to be able to cut the, the price of drugs, particularly for rare generic drugs you know, that have less use that allow people to just jack up the price. Perfect example being Daraprim with the farmer bro who jacked up the price from dollars to hundreds of dollars. And so I was like, that's very interesting. I'm very interested in healthcare. I've done a lot in the space, but let's expand it beyond just these hard to manufacture, hard to source drugs. And let's try to do it with all generics and not just manufacture them or compound them, but buy from the manufacturers themselves, make some, we're building a manufacturing plant in Dallas for injectables. And then also buy from wholesalers, distributors, in addition to the manufacturers. Then with that in mind, it was like, okay, one of the challenges that patients always have is figuring out where to buy. There's some places have coupons, but the coupons aren't always valid and they're not always valid at the pharmacy close to you and the prices change and it gets kind of confusing and it's hard to budget. And that was one way of doing it. Others, they charge you a monthly fee. And we looked at that and just decided if you can't afford your medication in the first place, if you're like you mentioned, 25% of people have an issue. If you're having to choose between rent and food and education or whatever it may be and your medication, you know, you're probably not going to be able to afford some monthly fee. And so we just decided to make it completely transparent, just mark it up 15%. And how do we get 15%? Won't just pulled it out of the air and said, okay, that's fair. And if we sell enough, we'll make money. And if we don't, we'll lose money. But with that, we started costplusdrugs.com. Gotcha. And how are you hiring the strongest team to make your company best positioned to tackle the pharmaceutical industry problem? So I learned a long time ago, I'm awful at hiring. Really, really, really bad. Because I'm a salesperson at heart and I sell myself. Whoever walks in the door, I'm finding a hundred reasons why to hire them and aren't I'm not very good at finding reasons why not to hire them. So Dr. Ashmyansky, and then we also have a gentleman by the name of Ryan Klein and several other people that are involved in doing all that. But obviously, when you have people who are so dependent on a company like Cost Plus Drugs, we're going out to find the best. And there's a lot of referrals involved. There's a lot of going to industry conferences and asking people who are the best for this position or that position. And then there's some basic blocking and tackling, like posting jobs on LinkedIn. And I have like 8.6 million followers on LinkedIn. And it's just me reposting it <laughs> to expand our, our pool. We're also looking at using resources like scoutable.com, which is one of my portfolio companies that looks at soft skills. Because it's easy to determine if someone, what, what degrees they have, how many years of service, get a referral. But it's not easy necessarily to, to determine what the soft skills a potential applicant has 
and what the, the soft skills that have been successful in the organization are. And Scoutable allows us to match those things up. And you mentioned earlier Broadcast.com. After being involved uh-huh. in the tech industry for decades through building the unicorn Broadcast.com and selling it to Yahoo in the late 1990s, exploring topics like AI, Web3, and blockchain, how and why did you get interested in healthcare? Because it was a mess. I always look for industries. So when we started the streaming industry, it was 1995. We were originally called AudioNet because you couldn't stream video at the time. And it was like, look, this new thing called the internet, there's got to be a way to use this, this thing and be able to listen to Indiana basketball, my alma mater, here in Dallas, Texas. And we went from there and tried to find a solution. And it, it w- I looked at it as an amazing opportunity because the media industry, they did things the way they've always were done, right? There wasn't a lot of innovation. And to me, that was an opportunity. We start, I started a company called HDNet with a guy named Phil Garvin in 2000 because we wanted to create the first all high definition TV network and everybody in the industry that we talked to said, no, those high definition televisions cost $25,000. No one's ever going to buy them. I'm like, no, you don't understand. They're going to come down in price. Oh no, people don't care about school. No, you don't understand. They're going to come down in price. So those things that you hang up on the wall that cost 25 K today, they're going to follow that PC performance price curve and cost $400 at some point. And so that was an opportunity. And it was the same with cost plus drugs. When you see an industry that's become set in its ways and they're doing it the same way they've always done it simply because that's the way they've always done it. And that's part one. And then part two, when you see that not the stakeholders' interests are not aligned, you you had alignment between payers, the insurance companies, and providers, the healthcare, the, the hospitals, et cetera, and the um, PBMs and the big retail chains they were looking to maximize margins and revenues. That's not in alignment with what patients want. Patients want to be healthy at the least possible cost. And there's a limit to how low you can go, obviously. Like the industry says, you got to pay for R&D, you've got to pay for a lot of things, but we were dealing with generics to start. And the R&D had already been paid for. And yet still the pricing was insane. And so Dr. Oshmyansky, Alex and I just thought, okay, this is an amazing opportunity. And so we went for it. And that was going on four years ago. And you announced earlier in the year that you're building your own manufacturing plant in Dallas, Texas for generic drugs. Why do you see manufacturing your own generic drugs as an important part for the success of the business? Well, what we're doing to start is something called injectables. Like if you get something that has to be injected, and those aren't going to be sold direct to consumer. Those are actually going to be sold to hospitals. And the reason for that is there aren't a lot of manufacturers here that actually make injectables. And when they do, the prices are insanely high to hospitals, which in turn makes it insanely high for patients. And so we told hospitals that if they reduce their pricing, we in turn will do our cost plus. And there's some extra fees and everything because of the injectables. So we charge the hospitals a little bit more than the 15%, but it's a cost plus. We'll make those available far less expensively than what they can buy now. And so our manufacturing plant will work with that first. And then hopefully if everything goes well, then we'll extend that. So we'll be able to make drugs as well. It's completely, not completely, but 90 plus percent automated robotic factory. So we'll have a lot of flexibility. Gotcha. And then besides generic drugs, according to Statista, 84% of drug spending in the U.S. in the year of 2021 was branded, which really demonstrates how large the branded market is. You mentioned how you plan to get into branded drug companies on board, but what are the biggest hurdles you're encountering when getting them on board? And then what are you doing to overcome them? 
basically it's just the manufacturers of branded drugs just trusting us and recognizing that we have a large enough customer base. Particularly, you know, we're growing so quickly as our customer base grows, then we become a more enticing outlet for them to sell. And so we're having all those conversations. And, you know, as we continue to add more patients, I think we'll definitely overcome that. I think you'll see us announce some brand name drugs this year, hopefully even a lot sooner, potentially even within the next 60 days that will really be game-changing for a lot of people. It'll take some time for us to scale those drugs, but still we'll be able to have an impact a lot faster than people think. And then it becomes a self, a virtuous circle, if you will, where those branded drugs allows us to add more patients, more, more people that we cover, which in turn, get, it makes it more attractive for the branded drug manufacturers to use us. And then as new drugs become available, particularly not, there's some drugs that are, are super complicated, super expensive. That's going to be a little bit more difficult for us to sell. But as other drugs come to market, because we sell direct to consumer and we're not in the middle of all the PBM stuff, we think that there's going to be a lot of new drugs that come to us first because we'll be able to offer them to anybody for a much less expensive price. And that's good for the manufacturer. They'll sell more volume and it's more accessible to patients because right now, as you mentioned earlier, the PBMs kind of act as the doorman at the club, right? Behind, with the red velvet rope where they say, okay, you have to pay this rebate or do A, B, or C in order for us to put you on the formulary for this insurance company or this hospital or whatever. And you obviously have a clear strategy to let consumers know about Cost Plus by putting your name and brand on it. And although the patient does make the final decision for where they buy the drugs, in many cases, physicians are using programs like Epic to prescribe them. You told a story on a podcast how a physician let the patient know of Cost Plus so that they could save money with their prescription. Do you plan or already are partnering with physicians and institutions to get them on board and educate the patient about Cost Plus? Yeah, of course. I mean, we're going to a lot of different hospitals, particularly my, my partner, Alex, who's a doctor. He knows exactly how all the ins and outs of the hospitals work. So he's going and doing those speaking engagements. I'm on social media, doing podcasts and doing PR stuff and getting earned media for that very reason. We, you won't see us spend money on advertising at all because we need to keep our pricing low. And for a second reason, if you have a product that saves people's lives and you're selling it for less, People, A, want that product, and B, they tend to tell other people in similar circumstances what they just did. So we have a leukemia drug that if you don't have insurance, it could cost you thousands of dollars, and we sell it for $54. And so if somebody is in that circumstance and they buy from us for $54, the first thing they're doing is telling their doctor. The second thing they're doing, they're going on Facebook forums or wherever or Twitter and telling other people that, hey, if you've got, we all have this this ailment and here's a place to save a lot of money and it still may be cheaper than your copay with your insurance company so even if you think you have amazing insurance check these guys out and so that's really that viral word of mouth has been our form of marketing and it's worked out really well yeah it's a great point over at cost plus you're employing the marketing strategy of storytelling and in the book contagious by wharton marketing professor jonah berger he talks a lot about the importance of storytelling for marketing when something offers real value people like to talk about it and they naturally like to help others and will spread the word through those stories and it's a tactic used by some of the largest companies in the world including apple and airbnb i mean i have another company Alyssa's healthy cookies which is just a product i eat every morning because it's high fiber low cal low carbs 
another company that went from a guy living in his car, right? Doug Sirachi working out of his car, sending me sample cookies and me doing one sample tasting at a grocery store in Dallas. And from there, he's grown to about $20 million in sales and about 9 million in profits without spending any money on advertising. So when, you know, it's the ultimate goal. If you have a product that it doesn't have to be life-saving, even if it fits within someone's lifestyle and habits, people will tell each other. And you don't need to just spend money on marketing. And I think that's one of the challenges that startups have in particular, because a lot of times, and I see this over and over again, the first thing a startup company wants to do, particularly if they've just raised money, is hire a marketing person. And what's that marketing person want to do? They want to use everything they just learned in school or just learned in the company they came from. So they, they always try the marketing one-on-one approach or they'll go out and hire a PR firm. If you've got a great product that people really love and it's a great value, like you just said, and, and like the book said, they will tell others. And that is the best marketing. And that's how the, the, the most profitable companies scale. Totally agree. And then if we're talking about the pharmaceutical industry and prices, it's hard to ignore Martin Shkreli. And for those of you in the audience who don't know, he raised the price per pill, as you mentioned earlier, of the drug Daraprim from $13.50 to $750 overnight, which is a 5,000% increase. Now, obviously, it caught the attention of the press and there was a lot of backlash, but initially there was very little people could do about it besides pay up, even if that means going into poverty. And besides that, up until recently in 2018, there were gag orders for pharmacists where they could not tell the customer if it would be cheaper to pay for their prescription out of pocket instead of a copay through insurance unless the customer specifically asked. With so many hidden systems, it results in a high level of distrust in the industry, whereas you're keeping it super clear by doing the opposite and being as transparent as possible with the customer. Yeah, simplicity is a virtue. You know, particularly we as consumers, we know 7-Eleven, we know exactly what we get when you walk into a 7-Eleven, Apple products for the most part, right? But the simpler you're able to keep an interaction, the better is consumers. Consumers want to take the path of least resistance. Yeah. We want to live our lives, no matter whether it's a medication, cookies, or a soda, whatever it may be, we just want to enjoy our lives and not have to stress about things. And the best products and the best services and the best employees reduce the stress of their customers or their peers. And that's that's what we've tried to do with costplusdrugs.com. And that's what I try to do and try to convey to all my, my portfolio companies. Reduce people's stress and great things happen. Totally agree. It's a topic that I talked with Spencer Raskoff about. It's either Great businesses, these are solve problems people have, or I talked to Chris Yeh, where you reduce the amount of friction in an industry. And if you have one of those two things, you can really build great businesses. Yep, for sure. And as Cost Plus continues to grow and put downward pressure on the current pharmaceutical system, do you think it will force them to fix it, or is the system unfixable and it's too broken? The fix it, the system is unfixable, but it's still that doesn't mean it won't be disrupted to a point where new players replace old players. Because if you can disrupt it enough that new people come in and buy the old ones and make them adapt to the new way of doing things. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen overnight. You could be talking a decade. You could be talking two decades, right? Because it's so entrenched. But I think if we're able to scale and, and have enough branded drugs where insurance companies start buying from us directly and because we don't play games with formulary, we just make everything available or hospitals do the same thing, then they'll have no choice but to adapt. 
And with the current state of the economy, all-time high inflation, and supply shortages in many industries, how do you see that affecting your business, if at all? Well, there's always risk, right? I mean, no matter how you look at it, everything has to be transported at some level, whether we're shipping to, to patients, whether we're bringing in, like we're building this factory and we had factory equipment not show up on time because of supply chain issues and transportation issues. So it's impacting everybody right now. The, the unfortunate part is with inflation the way it is, interest rates being pushed up, that will tamp down demand some. And when the demand is tamped down, then the supply chain issues tend to take care of themselves. And then hopefully this time around, the, the supply chain will scale with the demand as opposed to being caught out of whack because of the unexpected demand that happened during the pandemic. Got it. And you mentioned on the Harry Stebbings podcast that you financed the business yourself instead of taking outside money. And the way I look at it is the second a founder takes outside money, they now have different obligations as they now have to run the business with more focus on profit, ROI and capital investment, et cetera. And then how has financing the business yourself been beneficial for the impact side of it? Well, I mean, I write the checks, so I, I, I get to have the, and it's, it's Alex and my companies. And so we get to di- direct everything. I don't, I don't have to have a, a, a meeting of, of directors and board of directors. It's just, okay, Alex, what do we need to do to solve this problem or to get this done or to win this, ba- this battle? And that makes it easy because you're exactly right. And I say it to people all the time, raising money is not an accomplishment. It's an obligation. And now you have stakeholders who are interested in making money, which may not always align. Now, often it does, which leads to the next question people always ask is, why hasn't someone done this before? And it's not that they haven't tried to do it before. It's just that when they get to a point of scale, one of the incumbents tends to buy them and then integrate them into their existing organization. And there goes the disruption. And I don't need their money. So that puts me in a different type of set of circumstances. And transitioning here into some other questions, what are some tips for entrepreneurs on how they can develop sustainable companies with social good? Do what you think is right, but also recognize that the mission can't overwhelm the product or service. Because at the end of the day, people will give you, if you have a great mission, people will give you the benefit of the doubt. If it's your product and service or service versus someone else's and you have a better mission, that's a great selling point and people will try to support you. But you can't ask people to do something they're not comfortable with. They're not going to just do it just because of the mission, particularly now in an economy where there's uncertainty. You know, I guess the best way to say it, you always have to put yourself in the shoes of your consumer, whether it's corporate or individual, and ask yourself, why are they going to buy from me? And if it's just because I'm planting trees, that's great, but that's not going to be enough if your product or service is, doesn't suit their needs. So you've got, to, you've got to be the path of least resistance. You've got to be value and valued. You've got to be something they're willing to talk about. And if you accomplish all those things and you can make a profit, then it's great to be able to take some of that margin and say, you know what, I'm willing to give up something that would otherwise come to me to contribute to society or do something that's important to me. I think people will respect that, but you've got to check all those other boxes. Just saying I'm, I'm saving the planet is not enough anymore because the reality is there's, whatever industry you're in, there's probably somebody else who has a mission as well who they, that you're competing with. Totally agree. And you've shared a lot of stories throughout the years on how you've gotten to where you are today. But what is one story that you haven't shared that's played an important part of your life? Um, I think my family and my friends have been really supportive because, you know, I was always on a mission 
And I wasn't always there and to do things, to go on a family trip or this or that. And they were like, okay, my brothers, my parents were always, we understand you're doing something that you've always dreamed of doing and you're, you're accomplishing things. But neither one of my parents went to college. So this was all new to them. And they'd always just tell me, I have no idea what you're doing, but we want you to try. And so their being supportive of me, I think made all the difference. And I've tried to take those lessons and apply them to my kids as well. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And when we talk about venture capital and sports, like recently we heard of NBA star Omri Caspi, who launched a unique early stage VC fund. What trend are you seeing with athletes venturing into the business world in venture capital? The money has become so significant for an accomplished athlete that they have to make decisions on investing. And one of the greatest opportunities they have is in building a brand because the NBA does all your marketing to build your brand. And Omri being the only Israeli player has a unique opportunity and unique presence. And he was able to do a lot of cool investing. And then he extended that to his ability to, to create a fund. And I think you're going to see that more and more. You've seen LeBron was, and Maverick Carter with Spring Hill. You've seen Kevin with Kevin Durant with Boardroom. And you're seeing more and more do the same thing. So I, I just think that guys coming into the league today, like Luka Doncic, he's a brand. He came in and immediately built a brand. And he's a max out player making tens of millions of dollars. And, and even while his primary 99.99% of his time is folk and focus is on being the best NBA player he can be for the Dallas Mavericks. He also has to be cognizant of what's happening in his financial life. And he's only 23, but he's, he's so smart and he's learning more and more every day about how to build his brand and how to build a business. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, at some point in the future, he also had a fund because he's got such a strong brand and that's a leverageable point for him. Right. And even I worked with a startup where we provided courses to Pepsi, where we allowed them to share how athletes can start building their brand and market themselves further to what the league yeah. already. And with what's with. happening with name, image, and likeness, NIL right now, yeah. kids are starting in high school. They're getting paid. There's kids that made millions of dollars while they're in high school. It's insane, but it makes them much more cognizant of the business side of their brand. And you see it now with social media and your podcast for that matter. Yeah. But it's an opportunity. You grab the opportunity and you go out there and try to make some money out of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's a great thing. And the more you communicate and the more you educate, the better for Gen Z across the board. And, and I think Gen Z is going to be better than millennials, better than older generations, simply because they're just so in tune with digitally with everything happening in the world around them. Totally agree. It's exactly what my dad partnered in Runch Junction Education. He partnered with Pepsi and Instagram and Facebook to make those NIL courses. But second to last question here is with billions of dollars, what has been the most important purchase to you to date? Um, I don't think purchases have, have ever been really important. They've been impactful. Obviously, the Mavs have had a huge impact on my life. Buying an engagement ring for my wife had a huge impact on my life. Paying all my kids' bills <laughs> um, and trying to not spoil them. But really, we all buy things depending on our income relative to our income level, but those aren't the most important things at all. The most important things to me have been just my, my love to learn. The fact that I love to learn and books and going online and reading and reading and consuming information, to me, those aren't the most expensive by a long shot, but they're most, they're most impactful because 
you have to be a lifelong learner to be successful in the business world. And I think in life in general, and business is always changing. And if you're not learning something new every day, um, if you're not learning what's happening in your industry every day, you're falling behind. And so the greatest acquisition you can make is really acquiring knowledge that allows you to compete. Like you talked about the elements of the pharmaceutical industry. I, I, I didn't grow up learning those things. You didn't grow up learning those things. You had to put in the time. And you always got to read the manual. You always got to read the details because most people don't. And the fact that you took the time, the fact that I'll take the time to learn these things gives us a huge competitive advantage. I agree. Learning is super important. And I've talked to a lot of founders. And one of the key traits that I've seen between the successful ones and the not successful ones is their ability to have curiosity, like consistent curiosity in not just their industry, but industries beyond them. That's the word I use a lot. Are you curious? Are you agile? Are you willing to change? Are you adaptive? Do you recognize your own failings? Do you lie to yourself? Because most entrepreneurs sell themselves and, and really lose a little sem- semblance of reality. And that can work for you, but it can very quickly work against you. And so, yeah, curiosity is one of the greatest traits of any entrepreneur. Right. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for those in the pharmaceutical industry and then, those, and then for consumers who are interested in Cost Plus? So really, it it just comes down to consumers. Check out costplusdrugs.com. You may not have any prescriptions, but your parents may, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your teachers. So let everybody know if when you go to the doctor, let them know to check out costplusdrugs.com. If we don't carry your medication, sign up anyways and tell us what you need and we'll work on getting it. And in terms of the farm industry, if you're a manufacturer, sell to costplusdrugs.com. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And special thanks to Mark for taking the time to join the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate it. You did a great, great job. Thanks for doing your homework. I appreciate it. <laughs>